Hello, do you hear me, Rob? Do you smell burnt hair? But he said he only... Rob, have you watched Squid Game? No, of course not. I want to pause here, Scott. But this is so. If you write the time down, let's pause here. I want to. I want to offer up the possibility that we kill everything we did here and start again. I don't need the. I don't need the Bruges, and I don't think really? it was fun. And Jonah was looking <laughs> exhausted. Hi, everybody. This is the Glop Culture Podcast. This is Jonah Goldberg. Don't worry. I am not replacing John Podoritz. It's just that we are now 40, almost 40 minutes into the show, and we decided we were going to kill everything we recorded before because John had a bit of an episode, and he, uh, he, he broke the obscenity rules of this podcast. He called out certain individuals by name that, while he does not retract his no. views about these people, he thought, and we agreed, that it was not the highest, best use of this podcast to start various tongue wars with various figures on the a American tongue right. Tongue or tongue? Tongue, as in like tongue. Asian tongues. Yeah. Okay. I said tongue wars. And, uh, and so we, um, we're starting over. You will never know. Great. Now no one's going to hear this in China. <laughs> yeah. You'll never know all so the we're, people. We're like Disney. Suddenly, we're like banned in China because of you. And there was a oh, lot of okay. a lot of COVID Calm rage. Calm there was down. a lot of anger. Yeah. There was a lot of dyspepsia. John has gotten his shot. He's walked around the yeah. block. So let me introduce everybody. Hi, John. Hi, Jonah. How are you today? You seem nice. Yo, and also in New York, we have uh, Rob Long, who. Um, was less dyspeptic than than John, but not altogether cheerful. Uh, well, hi, Rob. Hey, Jonah. What do you mean? I was as cheerful as it comes. I, I just felt like, and I and I was surprised because he, the, the, here's the the behind the scenes um, that uh, uh, at some point we we stopped briefly so that we could do a, put a little commercial message in here. And John said, "You know what? Let's start again." And right. it never occurred to me that, first of all, that we could do that or that we should do that. And it, it, it's surprising to me is that we haven't done it until now. <laughs> like, yeah, no, exactly. They were like, uh, real, so there is a limit. And I, it's interesting. Like, okay, but part of the okay, – I think we can say this. Part of the issue of what we, what would what transpired that we, with this, the lost episode is that we talked a lot about COVID and about vaccinations and people who get them, people who don't get them, people who aren't getting them, people who are arguing against them all the sort of madness around COVID, and it was both infuriating and exhausting at the same time, which is kind of a very complicated emotion. And I kind of feel like we're not alone, that we're both, like, pissed and also tired and also uh, mad at everybody, and we just don't know who to be mad at more. And, like, I keep my top ten supervillains list keeps changing <laughs> and i really had been one of those guys who wasn't i mean we don't have to talk about this who wasn't uh, uh, mad about fauci like or fauci like i just didn't care and then i was talking to a friend of mine who's like very pro fauci and i found myself getting really mad about him and like getting <laughs> yeah. really like you know what i mean like sometimes like i'm like wow i didn't know i felt that way and i don't know if i really do feel that way but i just feel like this is not us at our best, not me at my best, I should say. Yes, I often feel like Jerry Maguire in that movie called Jerry Maguire, where he... Um, is that the movie called Jerry Maguire? It is, it is. The main character is named Jerry Maguire, and he says to Cuba Gooding me. Jr., um, help me help you, yes. right? And 
when I see people on the left and right making deliberate jackasses out of themselves, knowing full well that they're giving their intellectual or their political enemies permission through their own behavior to mirror their own jackassery, but from the other direction, I just want to tell everybody, stop it. You know, help me help you be sane. And I know that sounds condescending and all the rest, but when you have people like Charlie Kirk going around saying we should catch the freedom flu, um, and then having the jackwads on the left pick up on that stuff and say, see, this is what all the conservatives are like, which is intellectually dishonest too, it, it just makes me want to put out cigarettes in my hand. I, I feel like we are trapped. Wait. Let's not go down the road again. Topic. Are you okay? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm really not. I'm not. I'm just. Wait, you're say, really not. You mean are, you're not what? You're not are, okay, or you're not going down this topic? No, I, I I'm not going to go down this road. I'm okay. saying I think that we 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 have we find ourselves trapped inside the boundaries of this topic that is driving everyone insane and has driven everyone I, insane. I think Living. I, I think I have a theory. Okay. We um we don't uh we, we, we demand answers to everything and when we don't get an answer we get mad. So this thing, this COVID thing is this perfect lesson for you to sort of realize that everything's really complicated. Like, yes, the vaccines work. Well they only work about eighty five percent. But they work, but they don't really keep you from getting COVID. They just make it not so bad. And actually, there is an argument, I mean, an intellectual argument, but a scientific argument that it'd be better for kids to get COVID than it would be for them to get the vaccine. There, there are people who think that they're not wrong. Like, this, this, this thing continues to confound and reveal that our current culture, which is entirely partisan, entirely polarized, and entirely political, is completely unable with dealing with anything from the natural world that simply does not care. Who you, the, doesn't, the COVID-19 does not care which news channel you prefer. And we're just not equipped to handle that. So I want to take it out of COVID because that's what really got us into the mess beforehand. Remember, John originally just started talking about how he went to the theater and oh, required yeah, everyone that? to wear masks even though everyone was vaccinated. We're not going to go back into that because that is the slippery yeah. slope. Yeah. Yes. But um, so I just wrote this very long uh, newsletter G-file thing about David Shore and this David Shore stuff. And what got me on it was that I was doing um, a different podcast, the Dispatch podcast with my colleagues from there, and we were talking about the Shore stuff. And for the, for listeners who don't know, David Shore is this uh, self-described socialist um, egghead data guru who basically argues that the Democratic Party is being mismanaged by a bunch of woke 20-somethings who uh, steer the party in ways that are not actually reflective of what the average voter not, or even the average Democratic voter um, really believes or wants. And as they were talking, we we're talking about all this, and I agree with this entirely. I've been ranting for a year now about how insane it is to talk about birthing persons instead of mother and Latinx and defund the police. These are not majority positions among African-Americans, among Democrats, among anybody outside of a handful of salon around the world, around the East Coast and West Coast. And and it just dawned on me as we were talking about the Democratic Party and the problem of, of it being sort of hijacked by, um, you know, this very small, woke cabal, um, we might as well have been talking about Netflix. 
because it's sort of the same phenomenon, and it's the same phenomenon you get at like right. you know all sorts of media institutions where, and I think this gets to some of the, so COVID is obviously a big driver of these things, but I also think there is this dynamic that particularly, you know, is dominated on the left because the left controls the commanding heights of the culture where they claim, you know, they talk about how they're the majoritarian party and they believe in democracy and how um, they want to get the Senate's undemocratic, the electoral college defies the popular will and all this kind of stuff. And they make it sound like they have the American people on their side when in reality, they're trying to use the Democratic Party as a Trojan horse for very narrow, very unpopular positions. And they claim that anybody who disagrees with them is defying the popular will, including all of this spending from the Democrats, which are not popular. If you tell people that they have to pay even a few bucks a month out of their own pocket for any of this stuff and the Build Back Better thing, they're like, I don't want to do that. They all think it's free and that's going to be paid for by rich people. And so we live in a culture where all of the elites who control, like, Hollywood, media, and all the rest keep telling us that they're speaking for the average American where most average Americans know that's not true, but increasingly they're not allowed to say it. Okay, can I talk about a different podcast that I listen to, not <laughs> okay. your excellent Dispatch podcast, yeah, sure. but the 538 podcast, and they were discussing David Shore and what he calls popularism, right? David Shore is a 30-year-old Democratic Party player 30 really he's only 30 he's 30 years old guy's a pitcher. And what he wants and he's a pitcher and what he wants is for democrats to win elections you know why because that's what parties are for right parties are vehicles in in which individual people run to win elections and for and he as a political consultant says we should talk about popular things that people like in order to win elections and stay away from unpopular things, even if we believe them. If our purpose is to win elections, we should stress the popular things, stay away from the unpopular things, and then when we get into power, yeah. we can try to do as many of the unpopular things as, as, as it is possible to do. Right. But we shouldn't run on them. Because people don't like them. Yes. And I was listening to the 538 podcast where this was summarized, I think, pretty well by the crew. And then they proceeded to have a 10-minute debate about whether or not this was an accurate or wise idea. <laughs> that what a party seeking to get as many candidates elected as possible to do I disagree. is to say things. Yeah. Okay, but... Now, we had an interesting thing on the commentary podcast where Noah Rothman disagreed with David Shore, but in the right way, which is intellectually. In other words, he said, for people like us, we're not party activists, we're intellectuals, we're people who center on ideas. It shouldn't matter whether things are popular or not. That's not our purpose. Our purpose is to explain to the best of our ability why certain things work, why certain things don't work, why things have bad consequences, why things have good but consequences. But how does he disagree with Shore then? No, because he said he, he what he doesn't disagree with Shore. What he was saying is in people the the thought class that tries to describe and discuss policy and advance ideas in the best way possible should not bother themselves with what is popular and what is unpopular. In any case, that stuff takes can take a very long. Things that are unpopular can become popular over time, and vice versa. And and you shouldn't say, 
I don't want to talk if you are but don't you find, an intellectual writing for an intellectual right. magazine. You shouldn't say, I don't want to talk about this you, because it's unpopular. Because you're I, not I agree with that. But, election. Right. But, 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 I, sure, so but this, sure, this gets right. my big yeah. My yeah. big thing about how too many people in our line of work think they work for political parties and they right. do right. party work exactly. by proxy, right? And, exactly. But it's a perfect storm I, in the sense. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So I have no problem. Like, you know, I mean, people have strong opinions about Charles Murray. Charles Murray wrote a very important book called Losing Ground about welfare policy, and it bent politics over the course of a decade towards basically where, what he was arguing for. It was unpopular for Democrats to talk about it. It was unpopular for Republicans to talk about it. But that's the role of intellectuals is to float right. unpopular, not necessarily float unpopular, float ideas that they think are true and correct, and then right. let politicians figure out whether or not there's something they can do with it. The problem is we've got way too many people who think their de facto job is to be either advocates for or strategists for one of the two parties. Right. And I personally, I want David Shore's argument to win among Democrats. I would rather his argument win among Republicans, but having a party that actually cares about winning elections and cares about persuading the median voter, not ginning right. up the base, would be good for the country. Right. And it'd be good right. if both parties did it. Well, let me tell you two stories from my days uh, as an op as a as an editorial page editor at the New York Post and then as a columnist at the New York Post, both involving mayors of New York City. So I came in as editor of the New York Post editorial page in 1997. Rudy Giuliani was in his second term as mayor. He had had an extraordinarily close relationship with my predecessor, the uh, Eric Brandel, who died tragically young at the age of 42, about a year after the incident I'm about to describe. Um, and Eric had was so close to Rudy that he sort of like was kind of a marriage counselor while his marriage was in trouble. He helped write speeches. He did stuff that journalistically is not really kosher, but whatever. So there it was. And Eric is Eric has not been with us for two decades, and 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 uh, and he was a, a fine person in many ways. But he had this very close relationship with Rudy Giuliani. So I come in, and I'm the editorial page editor, and I am writing editorials every day about this, that, or the other thing. And, you know, I don't know, a month into the job, something happened. And I said that City Hall had mishandled something. And uh, my phone rings at 11 o'clock at night at home. And it is Rudy's press secretary, my friend Christine Latigano, whom I had known before any of this because she had been, uh, was the girlfriend of a friend of mine before she was the girlfriend of Rudy Giuliani and helped break up his marriage. But she called and she started screaming at me. And she said, this is not helpful. What you're saying is not helpful to us. And I said, Christine, my job is I don't work for you. My job is not to be helpful to you. Like, I work for the New York Post. And I, my goal, I, I think that Rudy is a great mayor. And I'm happy to support and do support all sorts of things that he does. And we'll praise him when that happens. But I, I, you seem to be under the misunderstanding that I, I work for you and I don't work for you. Right. And she, she, she was very angry, slammed down the phone. And I got calls like this a couple of times because I'm sure Rudy said, you call Potter and you tell him that what he's doing is not helpful, right? Okay. <laughs> Flash forward another like six, five or six years, and Bloomberg is mayor. And I suddenly get emails uh, one morning from um, his press guy, uh, Jordan Barowitz, uh, like a, a, a string of emails that say things like, 
I can't believe Podhoritz is doing this to us again. This is a, about a column, not an editorial. I can't believe he's writing this. Doesn't he know this isn't helpful? He's not being helpful. What is the matter with him? He's not helpful. So I emailed Barowitz and I said, um, I just want you to know, I don't know if you know this, but I think you put me on an email chain that I'm not supposed to see. <laughs> Because, you know, like that, and he was like, oh, no, 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 we intended for you to see this. <laughs> they wanted me to know that they thought that I was not being helpful. Right. The reason that they believed and that all sorts of people believe that political writers, column, whatever, are supposed to be part of the team and to be helpful is, as Jonas says, because over the last, really over the last 60 years from the beginning of the Kennedy administration, intellectuals and people who write about policy from the outside have gotten themselves very confused about what role they play. Kennedy brought all these Harvard professors into, but, uh, the, into yeah. the government and th for this was for the yeah. for, and they became propagandists sure. for Kennedy including, you know, for decades after he died rather than independent scholars trying to figure out what was right and wrong with policy. And then this also happened under Reagan with the Republican intellectual or the right. conservative intellectual and, class. And it's and, and here we are now. Hasn't happened. And everyone is confused about this. Hasn't happened everywhere, though? I mean, it's happened like, you know, uh, 1930s, 40s, 50s movie, the reporters would come in and they were cynical and they didn't, they thought everybody's lying and they'd have a hat. They go, like, yeah, it bleeds, it leads, you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, and now they're all the hat point. They had a hat. They had a hat with a press it's in the, it. The most important and thing. They, get a get a shot of the blood, uh, Joe. <laughs> Call the front desk. We're gonna so, so stop the press. And now the copy. Right. The copy, copy desk. desk. Copy desk. Take us down. The front front dark desk night. Is right. Hotel. Right. <laughs> and uh, now. You, it, you call the copy desk and get me get me get a grilled cheese sandwich yeah. and a cup of coffee. Yeah. Uh, Bring it up to room twenty two thirty seven. Yeah, you give ahead. me a uh, give me a cheese sandwich, a cup of coffee, and a bottle of bourbon. <laughs> what do you want the coffee? <laughs> Coffee's for you. <laughs> you got to write this down. Uh, something like that. So, uh, yeah. and then then now they're all journalists. Where we're writing very important stories to change the world, <laughs> and we're just kind of we're also we're also public servants in a way. And journalism is very important. Like uh, they got you know no reporter, no war reporter, no, nobody in 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 the European theater in World War Two who's writing journalism, reporting, would recognize these grandees, these, like, uh, soft NPR. We're here just to talk about the problem of the homeless and housing and the housing crisis. Like, they just don't – they, they, all this crap. We all just got so serious and so full of ourselves. But, I mean, I, the, the, the argument about, about – I, I, I understand the, uh, the, the idea of, like, trying to be helpful and that everybody decided that they were that – they were, um, they want to be big shots in government. But what's so surprising to me is how low the stakes are. That, like, people – it used to be that um, everybody knew your congressman was a crook. Like, he had to be a crook, basically, because he had to run every two years. So they weren't – like, the best people weren't running for Congress. And, and everyone knew that in 1811. And now we act as if I'm a public servant. And I'm here – like, everybody got, up, got pompous because we all – the countries who got rich – I mean, here's here's my analogy to that to the be helpful. It's like well, they also think everybody works for them. And so I, I once was, was uh, uh, putting it together a writing staff, and an agent called and said, um, "Hey, uh, uh, have you? Uh, can I? Get, would you like to have a meeting with my client? Can you have a meeting with my client?" And I said, "Oh, uh, you know what? Uh, th thank you, but no, you know we are we we have hired at that level already." And he said, who? Who'd you hire? 
And I said, well, I can't tell you because the deal's not done yet, but I can tell you that, you know, we hired at that level. And then I said, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but can I just know? <laughs> what are you talking? No, I told you you can't. Like, yeah, but just, just for me to know, can I just know? <laughs> and I feel like that's kind of everybody's attitude, which is like, this, you're not helpful. Can I just know? Just tell me, just for me. I want, I want that. This thing you have, give it. So I, I, I think, you know, we're in violent agreement on this. I, I had similar experiences working for National Review where I would often get invited to come speak to, a, you know, this conservative group or that conservative caucus on Capitol Hill. And, you know, it was billed as me talking about where I see politics or whatever, or the future of conservatism or whatever. And then I got up there and it was, I only had to do this like two or three times before I realized, no, this was the excuse that they were using to have – a bunch of these old hack congressmen scream at me for how National Review wasn't sufficiently helpful, <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, and it was so I stopped doing them. But to me, and I I understand where it comes from because there's an asymmetry, you know, on all this stuff. The right, in part because it was this insurgent intellectual movement, has been closer to the insurgent conservative movement politicians that took over the party. But the, the relationship never stopped, even as, you know, the Republican right. Party became super right. conservative. I think the best analogy to the Washington, to the New York Post pod story is how the political guys at, at Saturday Night Live have said this in a bunch of different ways over the years, that whenever they make actually make fun of Democrats, which is pretty rare, the Democrats feel utterly betrayed. Right. But the Republicans are like, yeah, that's, that's what Saturday Night Live does is it makes fun of us. But the Democrats assume that Senate Live is part of the team and that it's really grossly unfair for, you know, something like Senate Live to take a real shot at Democrats. They're only supposed to really take shots at, at Republicans. And that attitude, I think, now explains about 85% of the programming yeah. on MSNBC. And it's crazy, right? too, because it's such a weird choice. I mean – I, I mean, I, as you know, I, one of my good friends is Greg Gutfeld. I, am a, I, I, I think he's terrific. I love his show. I love him. It doesn't matter. I don't have – people say, well, you know, it could be this, could be that. It could be all those things, but he's a friend of mine. So when you're a friend of mine, I love you. So I love it. I'm doing the show tomorrow, as a matter of fact. Um, and I remember when he when we were starting, he was nervous. He's like, I don't, you know, I don't know. It's going to be competitive. It's a different kind of thing I'm, you know, every night. And, and I think I bet him money. I, I have to go back in our text that he would be – if not the most popular, the second most popular late night talk show um, in an instant, pretty much. Um, simply because he's the only one not shilling for the Democratic establishment. He's the only one not doing it. Like if you watch his show, you may not, you know, you may not be all in for certain politicians that he's all in for or partially in for, whatever. At least he's not crying about climate change and that is like a incredibly elemental brilliant move which is like and it, it like it, it it's so obvious you have to ask yourself like maybe milton friedman was wrong because the market is not is not noticing success here the market opportunity is so huge and it's just uh no one else is doing it right well, I mean, there are two two very good salient examples that compare with 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 Greg's example as a late night host. 
Uh, old ones. They're like 30 years old. One was Rush Limbaugh's TV show, and the other was Howard Stern's TV show. Right, right. Uh, Rush Limbaugh did this late night show. It was very, it was very much like what Red Eye ended up being years later, which is uh, was Greg's first show on on Fox at three o'clock in the morning. It was wild and interesting and kind of crazy. Wait, and, and Rush, and Rush's late night TV oh. show, produced by Roger Ailes right. in nineteen ninety two, nineteen ninety three, and it was a ratings blockbuster. And they could not get advertisers for it. They could not get anybody to advertise on it. It was killing, and they couldn't get advertisers on it because they knew because the advertisers knew it was too hot, and they would get tr- they would get into trouble at their board meetings, and they would get, there would be campaigns against them and all this. This is we're talking about early nineties. Right. Same thing happened with Howard Stern who obviously isn't a conservative and all that, but was kind of like a no BS person and was, you know, really raunchy and all of that. He had a TV show that was, again, a blockbuster late night weekend TV show. And, and, and they had to cancel it because nobody would advertise on it because it was too hot. And the whole point here is that anything conservative on network TV is now too hot, too hot. for the network. Right. Anything, anything. If you're going to put Roseanne on and they kill Roseanne, kill Roseanne's career for saying crazy things about Valerie Jarrett and all that. But if you're going to put Roseanne on again in this blockbuster show, you're going to make sure that she has a gender non-binary grandchild that she defends because you've got to sand the rough edges. If you're going to do Ro- the new right. Roseanne, you've got to sand the rough edges off Roseanne because anything that leans right has now gotten too hot. And that has created this incredible market incentive, not only for Greg's show to be a huge hit because there is this audience that is not being served, but also to give the the kind of the, the con artists on the right everywhere all kinds of fodder to raise money and do whatever it is that they do because, precisely because every time they say you can't, you don't, these stories aren't breaking through the mainstream media, they're right because it's on those late night shows that these stories are suppressed. Right. Because right, right, right. the crazy, crazy PC stuff should be every night would have been part of Johnny Carson's. Right. right. Oh, are you even kidding Carson me? Absolutely. Himself a liberal, but now it's all too hot and they don't, and they, and they are part of the team. You're right. They're absolutely part of the team. And so since there are three of them, they're cannibalizing each other <laughs> like crazy. Yeah. And Greg is coming right up the middle and eating their lunch. Yeah, I mean, Jay Leno would have run away with a lot of this stuff, you know. But again, like birthing person, like you can be entirely in favor of everything transgender people deserve and want and all that kind of stuff, but draw the line short of saying we're going to get rid of the concept of mother. That thing is just yeah. so crazy. That you thing know? that people yeah. wrote about in cuneiform. We're going to get rid of it. Exactly. And by the way. Sorry. Go ahead. Let me just say this. Let me just just go to the spot. So um, uh, we're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the principal and tax-friendly way to simplify your charitable giving. 
The Economist recently reported American philanthropy is going woke and predominantly funding liberal causes. Sounds familiar from what we were just talking about. Do you want to help counterbalance this liberal influence? If so, consider listening to Giving Ventures, a new podcast. It'll give you an idea of the liberty-minded organizations working to erase the heavy hand of government so individuals can prosper and thrive. Giving Ventures is a new podcast designed to help donors and prospective donors discover new opportunities to change the world for the better. Twice a month, the Giving Ventures podcast highlights several nonprofit efforts, initiatives, and projects that leverage private philanthropy to solve public problems. The show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund helping conservative and libertarian givers of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. The team at Donors Trust regularly engages with the policy groups, student organizations, academic centers, and civil society nonprofits that endeavor to limit government grow personal responsibility, and strengthen free enterprise. This show lets the Donors Trust team share the insights it gleans from those conversations and will help you connect new projects to your own philanthropy. If you care about the principles of liberty and if charitable giving is an important part of your life, Giving Ventures is the podcast for you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and catch up on the latest episode by visiting www.donorstrust.org slash glop. Rob, you were saying. I forgot. You forgot. Well, we, I, I always well, forget. We, Can we talk about William Shatner oh, I was going ask, into wait, space? Wait, before we do that, I was, was going to talk about Chappelle because okay. it seemed like this is a Chappelle. Yeah, so, okay. That's Chappelle. why I brought up the Netflix, the Democratic Party comparison yeah, yeah. Right. eons ago, as well as SRI Live, is to try to get us off politics. But sure. no, okay. but no, no, no one, one sees my layout. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. So talking about Chappelle is getting off uh, politics? Uh, yeah, um, but, uh, but the, uh, did you see it? It's pretty good. Get off the Democratic fun. Party. Yeah. It's pretty funny. I, I thought this was I thought this was the least funny as a, a in laugh terms of the four specials that he's done. Yeah. A couple of them have been sort of dazzlingly funny and I think we're actually in a weird way sharper on some of these more controversial topics I agree. than this one was. Um I feel like on this one about, yeah. he I mean, he was actually trying to build a bridge. That's how yeah. that's how much that's how bad it is for him and and how strict the opposition to him is is that even this wasn't enough but he did have some i mean there were some great great jokes in it one my favorite yeah. which i think i'm other everybody has their own favorite my favorite was when he's talking about caitlin jenner and he said caitlin jenner won an award for woman of the year the first year she was a woman <laughs> like she didn't have to menstruate she had to push out a baby she had to do any of that stuff she just kind of comes in and gets the award i thought yeah i hadn't thought of that that was actually pretty that's a that i would I, I i that is the the reason and of course it went into the turf business the trans exclusive radical feminist thing um right which of course is a, a danger word but the reason that 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 is so is that that's such a hot button topic as it were um for these people is because it's it it they know they know in their heart he's right well see i think what's interesting about chappelle is everybody understands that chappelle is the freest person in show business he walked away from a 50 or 100 million right, dollar right. contract in 2003 because right. right. he said you know what i, I don't want to do this anymore and he sat he did something that nobody has practically ever done in the history of show business which was walk away from a gigantic pot of money right. that he thought was going to tie him down and was going to domesticate him in a way he did not wish to be domesticated he kind of vanished for 10 12 years 
And then he came back on his own terms, obviously having made it clear that he was saying F you, he'll say F you to anybody about anything and is, you know, and legendary stand up and sort of came back and Netflix paid him. I know they were paying him a hundred million dollars, $40 million a show, some crazy amount of money. He's fine. Like the issue has nothing to do with him. He's not in trouble. He doesn't care. He knows they're going to come after him. He's quit already. It doesn't matter. There are two sources, the two reasons that there are these protests and all this stuff is going on are twofold. One is to send a message to any other comedian in America who is not Dave Chappelle, not to cross this line or you are going to be destroyed. And the second is to say to Netflix, look, maybe you're going to do this with Dave Chappelle. Good, good luck. Congratulations. Right. We're, we're, right. we're yelling at you, but we understand you're going to say, look, they watched 175 million minutes of Dave Chappelle, and so we're happy with the deal. But uh, come close to another controversial comedian willing to say uh, har- you know, harsh things about transgenderism, and you are going to stay well, you're going to stay way far away from that, because unless the person is established right. and famous and has already said F you. Right. You Netflix, you Ted Sarandos, you Reed Hastings, you're not going to do this, are you? And you know what? They're not. They're and not. it's going to work. It's yeah, going it, to be. It's going to work. It's going to be. They're not going to cancel Chappelle. They're going to cancel everything about Chappelle that's not Chappelle. And also, it'll be a chilling effect because there'll be a lot of young comedians who are like, I have all these great jokes, which I cannot tell. Which is kind of what right. people say. This, this is all it means to be a comic now. Yeah. What it means to be a comic. When, back in the 90s, what you wanted was a sitcom. Right? That's not what you want now. What you want is a Netflix special. Right. You want a Netflix special. That's what makes your career now. Or an HBO for, was HBO right. for a while. Now it's Netflix is the hot, is is the big daddy, but there are others. And so you're not going to do anything that is going to jeopardize your ability to get that Netflix special. And the rules of the road are being established as we speak. So the thing that bothers me about all of this, I mean, I think you're right, but. Like, so much of this – so when I was still working on my first book, Liberal Fascism, which was, like, attacked for years before it came out, I got this advice when it finally came out. Um, my editor said, you know, look, these attacks on you – and there were a lot of attacks – you should think of these people as basically like the animatronic pirates in the Pirates of Caribbean ride. <laughs> they good. can lunge out at you. They can startle you. But they can't really do anything to you. And um, Netflix doesn't depend on advertisers. The customers, I posit, if more than 2% of the customers give a rat's ass about Dave Chappelle's transgender jokes, they are more than made up by the people who actually want edgy material, and that's why they subscribe to Netflix. And we saw this protest today where it's like that that arrested development scene where dozens of protesters, dozens, um, came out from the company, did this walkout, and a company that has 9,400 employees, and like maybe 30 of them did this walkout and got all of this publicity. You know, uh, the idea that somehow Netflix can't actually just care about what its customers want. Right, right, right. Particularly when they don't have advertisers, right? Right. So it's because it has two, because Netflix has two masters. It's audience, subscribers, and making sure that there's less churn and that more and more people subscribe. 
which is exactly what's happened. They announced they had 212 million subscribers as of the last quarter with the success of Squid Game and stuff like Chappelle. Like they are just they're they're, they're doing taking well. they're doing very well. They are yeah. While while all of these other services are trying to nip at their heels, they're growing. That's an amazing factoid. But the other is they got venture capital and they got their stock price. And nobody who is trying to make sure their stock price remains elevated wants there to be day after day after day of headlines but, about Netflix but, but, being controversial. But, and articles in the New York Times that say the bloom is off Netflix's uh, rose. Even if Netflix can say, the hell it is, yeah, we just uh, got 20 new million subscribers while Peacock and Hulu but and there's no evidence Plus that Netflix, Paramount Plus yeah, are all but charged. No, but there's no evidence that Netflix is paying a financial price because of Chappelle. The, the, quite the reverse. So, right, they... Right. But the, the week after Chappelle, uh, you know, exploded, they had a very, very great earnings call with people, and, and they're considered a very strong company. And and if anything, the story, the streaming story, is the slowing of Disney Plus, right? So right. they seem to be all right. The weirdest thing about it is that there is literally no way, like that, that nobody understands the scale. The, the there is no way that Net, Netflix is trying to be not just a cable channel, but an entire universe of entertainment, everything. They were going to have everything. There's nothing that Netflix says we're not going to do. They want to do sports if they can afford it. They want to do live. They want to do everything. You cannot do everything. You cannot be global and not upset people. It's just not possible. It's just not possible. And the the, the people who the employees who walked out of Netflix, I mean, they should be fired just for their innumeracy alone. There is no way that all of that data <laughs> and all of that. The, all of the, the 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 bits and bytes of entertainment they have that's global. There's no way it's not going to be offensive to you know two percent, one percent. Just can't happen. Like it, it, no, and, but they're the two percent or one percent to whom it is offensive. And the point is that there is a there is but, an but assertion Serendus being is, made. But Serendus's response counts. But Serendus's response yeah. is you we, we, we will continue to we, we will continue to look for programming like this. I don't know if he's telling the truth or not, but. That you can't have a system, you cannot have a, 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 a service that's that big and not have, I mean, most, if you're on, that's like saying uh, everyone who goes to this, not to watches the Super Bowl, but is actually in the stadium, one or two jerks ruin everything. We're not going to have a Super Bowl because we have two yeah. guys in there wearing MAGA hats or whatever. That's just crazy. Like, at, at the, if you're gonna if you're gonna play at that scale, you just you just have to swallow it. I mean, all the people who walked out. I agree, John. That obviously the concern about the stock price stuff is real. I just think it's misplaced because look, Fox puts all sorts of stuff on air that offends, you know, the same people who walked out of Netflix. And the reason why they keep doing it is because they want to maintain their stock price because they have an audience for it. And the idea that somehow if a bunch of people were scared off and pulled their stake in Netflix because they didn't want to deal with the dozens and dozens of transgender types yelling at them, other people would buy that stock at a discount in a heartbeat. I mean, the, right. just the idea that you're going to have a, a thing with 200 and whatever million subscribers on it and say – well, you know, we got to protect our stock price, so we're going to like throw people. We're not going to have people like Chappelle on, in Dev and we're going to put a lot more transgender front-loaded products out there. Which I guarantee you, in the Middle East, 
version of Netflix, those shows will not be available. Um, it just, I, I, I think so many people are being scared. It's like the mouse and the elephant. The elephant freaks out for no good reason right. about the mouse. Right. So much of this stuff is, is I think there's so many bluffs that could be called. Yeah. With yeah, all of this stuff. And I don't want to make it yeah. just about transgender because this is not what it is for me. It's just no, a lot right. of this woke nonsense yeah. is just people caving but, because their social circles are a bunch of pansies. Yeah, well, here, let me uh, let me share with you another uh, story from my distant past as a newspaper man. I was the TV critic of the New York Post. And one day I wrote a column about HBO's late night documentary series, Real Sex. And real sex was very, very, very dirty. I remember it well. It was, and by the way, did, it was the it was a news magazine show. It was the most popular show on HBO. Right. It was the well, only show. Well, that's, that, yeah. Right. Yes. So, but that's part of the story. So, I wrote this thing, and and I said something like, "If God wishes to return, uh, you know, to hit the world with a second flood to deal with the barbarism and horror." That is humanity has become. The reason will be real sex. That was how I how I started the piece. And yet once again, some point nine o'clock in the morning, my phone rang, and it was the head of HBO's documentary unit, Sheila Nevins, who was a legendary figure. Yeah. Um, and she said, "Let's have lunch. Let me buy you lunch. You name the restaurant. Let's have lunch." So I said, "Sure." So. We, she didn't say to me, you're not being helpful. Because actually, <laughs> said, you Let's were. Have lunch. She said to me, that piece was hilarious, which was really nice. I mean, I really, it was really funny, and I'm, you know, it was really, it, it, was, it was quite something, and I, you should be very proud of it. Let me just explain to you about real sex. She said to me, you wrote something very nice about a documentary we did about, uh, I don't know, Churchill or something like that. And I said, yes. And she said, that documentary doesn't exist without real sex. All... Our network doesn't exist without real sex. The great, the dirty secret of HBO is that it's supported by real sex and shows where they're breasts. That's that is our ad box. But in, in this was 1993, let's say, yeah. our value added is we can show breasts. That's our value added. This is this is we're pay cable, and you pay and you can see breasts. That's why on Dream On, which was a sitcom right, that right. no one remembers, it was basically like. Brian Benman would be there, and then there would be a woman just sort of walking around the set with her with her breasts jiggling. And th- this went on through The Sopranos, where they actually had to decide out of out of nothing to add the Bada Bing strip right. bar, oh, right, 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 because they needed breasts on the show. And then, of course, there's well, the first a- season of Game of Thrones, right. where it would right. be like. Hello, Yongo. Yeah. We're really going to do this. And as they were talking, some woman would just walk by in the screen with her breasts hanging out because that's what they thought HBO was, was the breast network. That's what they sold was the breast network. And she was saying to me, if you like some of the product that we do that's like high end, you got to understand how the business works. If you like it, it's all being paid for by this other stuff. Right, by real, real sex. And that's my defense. Right. Real, real sex yes. and taxi cab confessions. And they used to do this thing right. uh, after yeah. upfronts. Uh, they used to get all the network presidents together and talk about what show on another network do you wish was on your network? And everybody was like, well, you know, I have to say uh, Sopranos or Six Feet Under or whatever it was, um, True Blood or whatever it is. And then it was Les Moonves who, who leaned into the microphone and goes, you're all liars. The one you want <laughs> is real sex. 
is that's the one people watch. And everyone kind of like, oh, yeah, you're right. But I, 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 don't, I don't like myself for wanting that. Or Taxi Cab Confession was also that. I don't want that. Yeah. But that's, you know, let's look at show business. Like, there's nothing wrong with, like, showing a pair of, you know, nothing wrong. Well, you know, you're not, yes, as you have written in the pages of commentary, yeah. this is something we may never see again. So it was once, it was once a nightly feature of HBO <laughs> right. and Cinemax, and it is now uh, considerably less of, uh, of, of, of such a feature. Um, to the extent that I was watching the final episode of a show I really like and want to commend to people, Evil, on Paramount+, Plus, which is this X-Files-ish type show about a crew of people who work for the Catholic Church investigating uh, cases or claimed cases of demonic possession. Really, really, really good show. Huh. Really funny, macabre, okay. clever, surprising. And, and, and moves from CBS, where it did its first season, to Paramount+. Plus where they start cursing every now and then. And then I noticed in the final episode, there was a breast shot. And I was like, oh my God, I haven't seen a, I haven't seen a naked breast. Actually, in the movie The Last Duel, which is also really good, the one with Matt Damon and Adam Driver um, set in 14th century France, uh, there's a scene where there are nude women on a bed. And I'm like, whoa, wh- wh- my God, like, you know, this is what I, this is where I came in in the early 70s. Like, you could not see a movie without a nude scene. And now it's like, you know, it's like you, you almost want to call a cop. If, if, you really, if you're really struggling to find that kind of content, I can send you some websites. Thank you. Anyway, <laughs> Evil on, on Paramount Plus, really, a really quite brilliant show. Anyway, let me t- tell you guys that when sometimes I sit, watch Evil on my computer, I'm watching it while sitting in my X chair. Because ah. from the first moment I sat in my X chair, my body immediately said, so this is what a real office chair is supposed to feel like. Can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working? My ex chair can. Can your current office chair heat up or cool down? My ex chair can. It's all in the LMX massage and temperature regulation, exclusively designed and made for ex chair. And once you feel the customized support of ex chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar or DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair. High performance, quality engineering, extreme comfort. These are all reasons I love my ex chair. And sometimes, even if I'm not working, I sit in my X-chair just to get that feeling and sometimes watch evil. Take my advice. Try X-chair for yourself, risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair should be, you'll never go back. Go to xchairglop.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, G-L-O-P.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month, xchairglop.com. Jonah, did you find it exciting that William Shatner went into near space? Ninety-year-old William Shatner. I thought it was um, it was nice. I thought I'm very pro space exploration. I like that these billionaires are throwing their disposable income. Um, I could have done without some of William Shatner's poetry, but a ninety-year-old in that good shape. God bless, you know. But I wasn't like. As a Trekkie, it did very little for me. I was just reminded. I talked about this on the on the commentary uh, uh, podcast. So if you heard it, I, I apologize for repeating myself. But um, you know, one of the things that Bezos did here. So Bezos is like a kid of grew up as a kid of modest means, uh, and um, one of the things that inspired him and that and that fascinated him and that he was he was obsessed with was Star Trek. And in this, he was like a great many people in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, 
who changed the focus of their lives because they watched this 79-episode middling success, mild failure series that went into syndication and suddenly became an obsession of American teenagers and people who loved this vision of this essentially American exploration of, of the universe, the five-year mission to seek out new worlds and new civilizations and boldly go where no man has gone before. So many people who went into aerospace and went to work for NASA and all of that said that they were inspired by Star Trek, that we named one of the space shuttles after the USS Enterprise, after the ship on Star Trek was named, the yeah. uh, shuttle was named for the ship on Star Trek. And it's a sort of reminder of, of, of the weird ways in which popular culture can have bizarre long-term effects that are almost entirely salutary. Like, in what way was any of that bad for America and the world? In what way is it bad for America and the world that Jeff Bezos is investing his you know, blood and treasure in an effort to make the world of the upper atmosphere, something accessible to Americans. I mean, it's it's a great thing that he's doing, and he was inspired by a piece of pop culture junk that Jonah and I both Easy. love unreservedly, but certainly would never have dedicated our lives to trying to achieve. Junk is strong. Uh, you know, they, they, they did a lot with what the parameters of that show were allowed to do. And I would argue that some of it was actually intellectually and, and dramatically better than a lot of the Star Trek products that flowed from it. Um, but that is a level of geekery that at this time of night I am not willing to entertain for very long. <laughs> Can I tell you one thing? I may have mentioned this years ago, but I think by far my favorite Star Trek product uh, wasn't a show on Star wasn't an episode of Star Trek or one of the Star Trek movies, though I think a couple of them are fantastic, and I really love them, particularly, of course, The Wrath of Khan, which is one movie. of the best science fiction movies ever made. But, and proof um, that if you have a good sequel, you can create a franchise. It takes right. one good sequel. That's right. It was, it was because the original was terrible. Bad. It was not good. And suddenly it was like, whoa, hey, this is amazing. This yeah. is really great. Was a novel written there was a series of novels published in the star trek universe 50 60 novels paperback novels and there was one called the vulcan academy murders <laughs> which i which i read in my i don't know during college like on a plane i bought it in the, and i bought it in an airport and i read it on a plane and it said the whole thing is that for, there has not been a murder on vulcan in 3000 years and suddenly at the essentially at the Harvard of Vulcan, a dead body is found. How does this culture, which has de dedicated itself to figuring out how to tamp all human emotion down, or uh, tamp all emotion down, and live entirely through logic and rationality, how is it possible that a murder is committed? And it's a really terrific, really terrific science fiction book hmm. that I really enjoyed, and I'm just thinking about it because, of course, Dune is about to come out. And I think, Donna, do you agree with... I mean, I still think Dune is the best science fiction novel I ever I love read. Dune. I love it. I've been rereading it. Um, very nervous about the movie. But I am, too. I don't think it's filmable, really, but... Um, I, I think at minimum, we can say, even without having seen this one, 
that it's the best attempt to film Dune yet. <laughs> Could Rob, still be terrible. Yeah. But. Did you have did you have a science fiction phase at all ever? Um, I tried. I tried. I I remember as a, when I was eleven, my brother, maybe twelve, I think maybe eleven, dragged me to see this science fiction movie that I knew I was going to hate, and I, and it was Star Wars. And I went and I watched <laughs> it, and I was like, "This is the greatest movie I've ever seen in my entire life." And I still maintain it's one of the greatest movies I've ever seen in my entire life. It captured what movie making and what movie going was supposed to be for me at 11 years old. So I loved it. Um, and then I guess I tried but the great to thing about it. Star Wars is it's not really very sci-fi. Right, right. I mean, right. It's, 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 it's just cloak and sword and sorcery. You know, it's like, yeah, it's like a, it's a, you know. Uh, but I, well, it's, a, it's an adventure. It's an adventure. It's, a, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. basically yeah. a Howard Hawks flyboy movie. Right, it's right, a 1930s right. adventure film. Gunga Din meets right. uh, Test Pilot. Gone Patrol. And yeah, right. In outer space. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then I tried to Only read. Only angels have wings. Then I tried yeah. to read more of them. And then I just, I just didn't, I just kind of like didn't. I guess, I guess, you know, I, 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 I don't mind science fiction so much. It's kind of fantasy that I hate. I don't like to open a yeah. book and then, and then see a map of a magical imaginary world. <laughs> these are the mountains <laughs> of Blurg, and these are the creatures of Black and the Wizard of Blurg. I am so with you on that. I don't like any of that. I am so with you on that. I tried for the fifth time. I tried to read Lord of the Rings yeah, to my son. I just don't get it. Um, and and again, it was like, and then they got up and they walked through the forest and then, and then they feeling. fell asleep. And then they met this guy who sang them these bizarre songs and, and, and fed them mead and they went right. to an inn and then they left the inn. And at some point, I know from the movies that there's action, but the first 150 pages of Lord of the Rings is the dullest. So weird. And then people say, people say, oh, it's a Christian allegory. And I'm like, okay, well. You know the the New Testament is you know maybe eighty pages, and and the Synoptic Gospels tell the same story over and over again. There's not much story there. You don't really need four hundred thousand pages in a map. Also, if you want weird stuff, it's like the guy and the mom isn't really good. But she, she's a, it's like he's not. He's a she's but Jonah. She, right, the yeah. angel comes and then he walks around. and He makes miracles and his wine and his fish and loaves. And then he like then he goes into heaven. Like that's a that's a fantasy. That to work with that. Just Easy work with killer. That. I don't know. Uh, like, I don't want to get on the wrong side of either Christians who yeah, don't like the idea yeah. of it being called fantasy, and yeah. I don't want to get on the wrong side of the good and wonderful people who love Tolkien. As yeah. I do. Um, oh, yeah, so I'm trying wrong. to defend both. I, I, I'm, I'm so saying so this, Tolkien, yeah. so Tolkien insisted it was not Christian allegory. Oh, That's right. C.S. Lewis. No, C.S. Lewis is Christian That's allegory. Yeah. So you love you love Lord of the Rings, but that is fantasy. That is not science fiction. Yeah. But and, I don't mind fantasy. Science, I, I, don't, right. I don't mind maps right. and whatnot. You know, that, that, right. I don't, that's I don't like the me. spaceships and the ray guns but, either. But I, it's true that the golden age of science fiction is 16, right? I mean, so there's a time when your brain is... right attuned to it and it's like it's harder to suspend disbelief as you get older for some of this stuff uh so two things about this one is that um uh dune is a kind of weird admixture of science fiction and fantasy because it is a or not fantasy but historical fiction because it's a story about warring 
royal families. Right. So in that sense, it's set in kind of a weird, even though it's set in a future in a world in which they, you know, in which in which uh, computers uh, so destroyed everything that that all all such things have been outlawed. Right. Right. And and so people in the wake of the Butlerian Jihad using yeah using um, a spice that makes it possible for strange creatures to bend space so that people can, people's ships can travel over vast right distances right so um that seems that's perfectly plausible <laughs> when you're 16 somehow the how that works if you actually look at it in the flat which is why the movie's going to be problematic but i also I like the science for some of the science we got so pompous it's like the characters would say something like it's the, the old star trek thing why he's one of the great philosophers aristotle rousseau Blarg of SETI Alpha 4. Like, <laughs> like, like, that stuff is like... Star Trek was yeah. great at that. The yeah. de- all the great documents. Magna Carta, the Declaration, yeah. the founding... Car- you know, the founding charter of Martian Colony 47. Yes, <laughs> right. Yes, yes. Why, this goes all the way yes. back to the... the, the yes, the, yes. Newton, Newton and Einstein and Cochrane, who invented the warp drive. Right, they were very good about that. Anyway, uh, does anybody, aside from me having said that uh, you should see Evil on, on Paramount Plus and The Last Duel, which is a really, really good movie. You can read my review at freebeacon.com if you want to. Um, really, really shocking good, uh, and I don't like Ridley Scott very much, so this was a big surprise to me. But um, and Evil is is really good. Jonah, do you have anything to recommend to people? Uh, so neither of you will like it probably, but I really like Apple TV's C. Uh, this bizarre dystopian future where all of the world is uh, blind, and so they do everything by hearing. It's shockingly interesting to me. I really kind of enjoyed it. Um, Almost masochistically, I'm sticking with Foundation, even though it's infuriating. It's it's very similar to Westworld in that I find it it holds my attention without necessarily holding my interest. Wow. <laughs> um, and um, uh, I had something else, but I, and I'm two episodes into Squid Game. I'm not sure if I'm going to go all the way with it. I think it's kind of overrated, but we'll see. Squid Game is it, it may end up being the the thing people keep talking about, which is there needs to be a new Game of Thrones. People are talking about Squid Game in a way that few people have talked about television since Game of Thrones. It's not going to be that, though. They're just not okay. going to create that kind right. of subculture. Okay. That guarantee yeah. it. At least not Rob, in America. Yeah. Rob, what do you uh, – I recommend A High on the Hog, Netflix documentary about uh, the, the foods and foodways of West Africa and how they came – and became the foods and the foodways of the American South and the Amer- American in general. High on the hog. Great. Unbelievably great. One last thing I will say is that um, my son has been watching 30 Rock kind of sequentially. And um, it's funny. Uh, I, I, I watched it when it was on and I liked it. I wasn't like obsessed with it. Um, but sort of every time I stop and I watch 10 minutes of it, I am staggered at the brilliance. Oh, yeah. Of Alec Baldwin oh, he's good. and the character of Jack Donaghy, uh, that's one of the great television performances, and that is one of the great television characters. Um, he that that is a character who can do exposition, uh, be the funny one, be the butt of the joke, um, 
and 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 always maintain a certain type of integrity. And Baldwin has, whether you like him or dislike his politics or whatever, want to make fun of him, um, has has timing and and an almost infinite variety yeah. of moods and attitudes mm-hmm. to take on. It's a it's an amazing it's a great show performance. It's also a great my, my secret yeah. interpretation of that show, and when we can get out of here, but it's just that um, uh, he that show fooled an enormous number of people in its first couple seasons before it became kind of sillier. Um, I remember Frank Rich talking about how Jack Donaghy was the perfect indictment of like corporate wealth, corporate right. Wall Street types, and right. all that kind of stuff. The reality is, if you actually pay attention, particularly in the first season or two, Donaghy is this well-adjusted, serious, decent person. And Liz Lemon hates herself, and people don't like her because she's mean. Right. <laughs> and, and and but because a lot of viewers connected with Liz Lemon, they didn't really realize that like she's actually the self-loathing, messed-up person that Donaghy is trying to save. Right. And I mean, um, the most the most brilliant episode of the show, as far as I can tell, is the one where they go back. She and Jack, he poses as somebody else. They go back to her high school reunion where she discovers that far from being the tormented outcast nerd, yeah. she was the ultimate mean she girl. Right. And that everybody everybody from her hometown has been in therapy for decades because of the wounds that she right. that she that she incurred with her sharp tongue also, and her viciousness. Yeah. Also just as a um uh just as like a, a craft thing, it was a fantastic joke book show. It was a, what we call a sweat act. It's like that show. They worked really hard. They worked really hard. If you don't like this joke, there's another one coming ten seconds later. You don't like that one. There's another one yeah. five seconds later. You don't like that one. There's another one ten. Se- they, they, it was it was incredibly incredibly hard working, hard delivering, hard jokes. Uh, and, you know, traditionally the single camera shows, like, you know, we always say the thing about a single camera show is that you get to go home early because you don't have an audience. They're not going to laugh at – you're not going to know that the joke doesn't work. You're like – you know, I was like the imitate the guy writing the single camera show. He's like, well, I wasn't going for a laugh there. It's more kind of a rueful <laughs> smile, right? But if you're, uh, you know, Tina Fey and you're half those people who work that show, you remember really clearly what it's like to stand in front of an audience or sometimes with your back to an audience if you're on the floor – and hear a joke die. You know what it's like. It hurt. It's painful. And they just said, okay, well, that'll never happen. Because the, the joke, if this joke dies, we don't have an audience to tell us that. We're going to have to have five other jokes right after it. And um, there's something great. Just the work ethic of that show is something really to be admired. Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, we've... Uh... We've actually been doing this now for like and and for like three hours. Um, yeah, I gotta go. As, as we on? said, you missed my daughter missed graduated the, college. Wow, that's you, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You missed. I the, died. Yeah, yeah. You're you're all, you're you're getting the nice the nice part, and you will never hear the bad part. You will never hear bad part. I bet I'm the first one asked what the bad part was. I, and we'll you, see. you're not gonna tell. I I, I don't think anyone's we'll gonna be shocked. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, anyway, so we will reconvene uh, when I am saner. Bye. She packed my bags last night, pre-flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm going to be high as a kite.
the earth so much. I miss my wife. It's lonely out in space. On such a timeless flight. Join the conversation. And I think it's going to be a long, long time until touchdown breaks me around again to find I'm not the man they think I am at home. No, 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 no. I'm a rocket man. Rocket man. Burning out his fuse up here alone. I think it's gonna be a long, long time. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time. By the way, Scott, all of this stuff, except for the rant, should be in this show somewhere.